Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's always a danger when we want to think that God's word is unclear. Now, it's a tactic that's as old as the fall into sin. The devil likes to use this, and he's pretty good at it. The devil asked Eve, and Adam was standing there saying nothing next to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? That is, is God's word really clear? Now, doubting God's word comes in many forms, then even to this day. And many times we see this on issues pertaining to whatever is the hot-button issue in society. Because if we can make it appear that God's word isn't clear about something, well, then we can justify ourselves, we can justify our actions to fit what we desire, or so that we can somehow get the Bible to form to what the world wants it to say. This past week was the convention of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, And they passed a resolution affirming, we've always held this and we always will, that God created the world in six natural days. That is, 24 hours days. And it's been published even in some different newspapers and things like that. And boy, did that really upset people. That we would actually say that God's word is clear, evening and morning, one day. And if you look at the history of the church, this has happened numerous times. And it's a fascinating thing to see, then, how these arguments have evolved to the extent that they have reached today. For example, even in the lifetimes of many of the people gathered here this morning, not my lifetime, but I'm not calling anybody old, if there was a practice that was not in accordance with God's word, then that part of scripture would have to be dismissed, or would have to be seen to be bound to a particular historical context and no longer applicable. Kind of that old, well, that was then, and this is now, and it doesn't apply to us. It was that line of thinking. But there was always implicit in that reasoning in the, is the admission that God's word, the text, is clear in what it says. We see that, and so we have to write it off. Because if it is clear, then the only way around it is either to deny it or just say that it is an error. We saw that in the history of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, with Seminex. When you saw these biblical stories and these biblical things and teachings that were dismissed, that they were questioned, or they were seen bound to their historical context. And then the offshoots of that group from Seminex, look at all the things they started adapting later. They started saying, well, scripture's not clear. So things like women pastors, marriage between a man and a woman, well, those are unclear issues. Right down the line, it happens. And so when we think about these things, it's important for us to look at God's word. And we think when, when we ask ourselves, what does God say? What is his clear word? And now at times our old sinful nature wants us to ask, well, this passage isn't clear, or show me chapter and verse where it says in these exact same words what you're saying. That's the difference between what's called biblicism and sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, we look at the whole of scriptures and we see what God teaches us. Biblicism, the, it says you have to show me chapter and verse where it says something. So in the absurd re- argument with that is nowhere in scripture does it say you can't run over somebody with a bus. But we learn from sola scriptura that God says you should not murder, therefore we shouldn't run over somebody with a bus. That's two different things. Now this reading from Romans today, like all of scripture, is clear. And it speaks to us on a very personal level. And it hits us in our very lives. God inspired St. Paul to write these words that we heard a few minutes ago. 
Hear again what God says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, what God says here to us this morning as we hear these words is something very clear. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or literally, the Greek says, let this never be the case. And God says that because when we look at our lives, we are to look at God's law. And what it does is it reveals our sin, and we want to go back to the garden. We want to listen to the voice of the serpent. Our old Adam likes things to be unclear in terms of the things of God. That's how the devil operates. He operates in blurred lines. And so we want to being a Christian to be something that we can define on our own terms. So here then in Romans 6, we see what this means to be a baptized child of God. The Lord teaches us, and he kills our own sinful man by this preaching. So the mindset we have according to our, own, our old sinful nature is that, hey, I can continue living in and sin and chalk it all up to, well, I'm saved by grace. We think that we can keep living in our sin and still claim the name of Christian. And so Paul, literally what he's doing in these words, this rhetoric, this how he writes this, is he shows that this is absolutely absurd. And that's why he says in this admonishment to us as Christians, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's expecting the answer of, of course we can't. God's saying, how can you claim your baptism when your whole life is lived against everything which God gave you in it? And so as a Christian, we sin against God, and we reject the new life that has been given to us in the waters of our baptism. And so the difference between the Christian who lives in his baptism and the Christian who rejects and falls away from his baptism is repentance. The Christian sees his sin, and he doesn't want to live in it. And he doesn't use God's grace as an excuse to sin, and as a way to profane God's name. He understands God's grace because he sees his sin and he sees he is unworthy to stand before God and that he deserves nothing but death and hell. He's contrite, he's sorrowful over his sin and he doesn't embrace it or find his identity in it. And he knows exactly what he's doing because God's word tells him. He doesn't try to mince words about it. God's clear word has convicted him and he sees that to remain in his sin would be to stand condemned before the throne of God. In faith, he trusts in Christ, who alone has taken that sin upon himself and who alone is his only refuge and his only redemption, who alone saves him by his grace. And so this is one of those things that seems so obvious. But we can come across this time and time again, even in our own lives. And perhaps it's because we've become so used to abusing God's grace that we've become so accustomed and immune to excusing ourselves. It's become the new normal to think that we can live opposed to what God's word teaches and says. 
We think that there is this gray area that we can exist, and when our old, ad, our old ad, Adam can willfully persist in unrepentant sin, and all the while still say, I'm a Christian. Our sinful flesh, the fallen world, and the devil tells us, well, so long as I say I believe in Jesus, what does it really matter in the end? We rationalize in our minds, and we tell ourselves, I mean, did God really say I can't love something or someone as much as I love him and put all of my time and attention into it? Did he really say I can't say these certain words? Did he really say that I have to pray and teach my children how to pray? Did he really say I have to go to church every Sunday and that that's the only place where he gives out his word and sacraments for my salvation? Did he really say that men should be the one leading their households in the church and that I should submit and obey authorities in the church and in home and in our government? Did God really say I should protect my neighbor and his body and and his possessions? Did God really say, did he really say that the only place that people should live together and for sexual relations is to be between one man and one woman in marriage? Did God really say I shouldn't get something in a way that's not right, but even if the law says it's legal and it's okay for me to do in the eyes of the law? Can I say things, can't I say things about others, even if they're true, and who does it harm if I want my, what my friend has? But that's who we are in our sin. That's how we talk about That's how we think, how we act. And we sang about that, about ourselves in that hymn we sang a few minutes ago. From hearts depraved to evil prone, flow thoughts and deeds of sin alone. God's image lost, the darkened soul, seeks not nor finds its heavenly goal. And so we think we can look at those Ten Commandments and we think, well, nobody's perfect. And, you know, I don't have to agree with all of God's word so long as I believe in Jesus. But that's not how things are. That's not what God teaches. That's not the attitude of faith. What does God say about that? Well, he says something in that Old Testament reading. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The law has a promise attached to it, and he promises something in that. God promises punishment for those who sin against him, And this goes right down the line as we continue in this in our lives, teaching it to our children, and generation after generation stands under this condemnation. And you stand in your heart, your mind, and your actions in your life under that same word of judgment. And so hearing this, God calls you to look at your life. He calls you to see his holy law. He calls you to see the righteousness that he demands. And there's a reasoning, then, why this section from Romans 6 is included in the fourth part about baptism in the small catechism. If you remember from your confirmation days, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So as a Christian, as a baptized child of God, God calls you to drown your old Adam. He calls you to put him to death, not just put him on the back burner, not just write him off and excuse him and say, oh, that old Adam, look at he's doing this. No. And how this happens is God works it through contrition and repentance, worked by the Holy Spirit. So you sit here and you hear these words of Scripture. And in faith you go, you don't excuse your sin. You hear what God says and you see it for what it is as evil. You see where it leads and it leads to hell. And so the irony in all of this is when we think grace is abounding while we continue in sin, we're actually rejecting God's grace. We're claiming a righteousness of our own that wants to justify and save ourselves before God that thinks we need no forgiveness. Instead of seeing our sin and knowing that we have nothing before God, to continue in unrepentant sin is really to reject that we're saved by God's grace alone. But you see that God-given voice of faith says this. It says, shall I continue in my sin? Shall I continue to ignore God's word, which is clear to me? Shall I continue to live a life that mocks Christ in my baptism? Absolutely not. It says, I know my sin. I know the weight of it. I know the burden it places upon me. And it cries out, Lord, have mercy. I've fallen short. I know my righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before you, O Lord. Have mercy on me, for I deserve only your condemnation. I deserve hell. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And you see, God's promise to you in all of this is also in these readings that we heard. We heard, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so for you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this means that sin doesn't have dominion over you because you have Christ who has made atonement for you. But Christ, the second Adam, came to bear our sin and woe and shame, to be our life, our light, our way, our only hope, our only stay. And Jesus said in that reading from Matthew, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus. And he's yours. You see, the Lord is the one who has had mercy on you. And that means your sin is forgiven. And he has given you a new life in the waters of your baptism. And it's a real life. And God's word is clear on this. And you know it. You have that in those saving waters, what Christ has accomplished. In that Romans reading, listen how many times he says, you know, you know this. You can know it. How? Because you're baptized into Christ. Because Jesus is the one who has looked at the Ten Commandments and he's fulfilled them perfectly. He's the one who has not excused sin, who's not written it off and say it's no big deal, but he's the one who's continued in righteousness so that grace may abound toward you. That's what Jesus has done. He alone is the righteous one who has saved you by his righteous person, his righteous life, his righteous death. And by his righteous resurrection, the Father has declared to you, you to be righteous before the holy throne of God. The resurrection of Jesus preaches that to you. And that's all yours. It's yours by faith. And so the righteousness of faith is the righteousness that avails before God because it's the righteousness of Christ. So now in Christ, God's law is not your enemy. As a Christian, you are a friend of the law. As Martin Luther once said, he coined that term. So your desire as a new man, as a Christian who emerged from those baptismal waters, you desire to live as God's law guides you, and as it is produced by the Holy Gospel. And you see these things in the commandments, and in your new man you delight in them, and you think about these things. You hear his word, you read the scriptures, and you teach them to your children to do the same, because God's law and all of God's word is good. And it's for the good of you, for the good of your neighbors. And so you see sin for what it is. It's evil. And even if the world around you tries to call it good, you know better because God's word is clear. And you conform your life to his by following what he teaches. You seek what he desires as he has revealed it to you in his clear word. And you see that you will fail and fall short and you cry out, Lord, have mercy. And God says, I forgive you. He says, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood given and shed for you. He says, go in peace, your sin is forgiven. And so you'll sing this in our closing hymn today. As you sing God's own child, I gladly say it. It's one of our girls' favorite hymns. They call it the baptism hymn. Magdalena even has it embroidered over her bed. Her godmother did it for her. So when you sing that hymn, that's your Christian faith. That's you confessing who your Lord is. And what you have in Jesus, given through your baptism, everything rests on Jesus. Everything comes from what he has done for you. And so if you look at those stanzas, the last stanzas, you see sin, you see Satan, and you see death. And when you sing that hymn, you tell them where they can go. Because you have the victory over them. As a baptized child of God, you look at those things, you stare them in the eye, and you see that they can't disturb you, they can't accuse you, and they can't even end you in death because you are baptized into Christ. And that means absolutely everything. And so thanks be to God for his word, which is clear to us. And God grant us to always hear it. God grant us always to confess it clearly without reservation, without apology, without with all boldness, even if on the internet they accuse us of any number of things of being ignorant or not listening to others, 
Never be ashamed of what God says. Hear it and rejoice. Because you see, you rejoice in your God, who has looked at you and has had mercy on you, and who says and has done all things well. And so thanks be to God for all of his benefits. Thanks be to God for the righteousness of Jesus that far surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because he alone is the righteous one who has done it in his perfect obedience to the Father and who has suffered God's wrath against your sin. And now all of his righteousness is counted to you and you have what he has done and he has taken your sin upon himself. And so thanks be to God for your baptism into Christ whereby your sin was forgiven, where you died, where you were raised in newness of life with Jesus. And even as you know that you will rise from the dead, and you know you will be with him forever. Amen.